Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. And it says in the 10th verse, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. John is the only gospel writer that identifies the name of this man. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And of course, drinking the cup has a reference to merely following the Lord's will. And the cup in this case was a difficult cup, a bitter cup to drink, as he was about to be crucified and become the sacrificial lamb for the sins of all of humanity. That was the cup he was about to drink. So the first lesson that I want to extract from this short passage that I have read is that we have the opportunity to learn from Peter's mistakes. I always am happy to learn from other people's mistakes so that I don't have to make those mistakes if I so choose. Now, how many of you parents just wish that your children would understand that? You tell them, don't make the same mistakes that I made, and then straightway they go and make the same mistakes that you made, because in their mind, if you had a right to make those mistakes, they have a right to make those mistakes. They don't understand you're trying to save them some heartache, pain, and despair. But Peter made some mistakes that if we'll take advantage of that, then we'll be much better off today. The first thing that I extract from this is Peter reminds us of the necessity of having a realistic perspective on life. Now, let me paint this picture for you. There's a detachment of Roman soldiers that followed Judas as he led them to the place where Jesus could be arrested. He led them to the garden. John is also the other, only gospel writer who called this a garden. They were led by one commander, and this commander is a person who typically would command up to a thousand soldiers. So you've got a big wig. He's not leading a thousand soldiers, but they pulled out their crack leader to lead this little band of soldiers. And they're accompanied by the actual soldiers. We don't know how many there were. It doesn't tell us. People could speculate all day long. We know it wouldn't have been uh, a clumsy number, not 200, not 100. It just wouldn't have been important. But there would be enough that if trouble arose, that the soldiers that accompanied them could put down the trouble without any problem. So if you want to speculate, 
How many soldiers would it take to do this? A dozen, a couple of dozen, maybe 36. We don't know. They just wanted to make sure that they could handle whatever may arise. Then you had officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees that also came along. How many officials does it take? More than a couple, I'm sure, maybe six. Let's just imagine six to ten. And then uh, you put all the soldiers and the officials together and the leader, and we could have had anywhere from a minimum number of 18 to 20 people and maybe as much as 40 to 50 people now showing up in this garden. John points out it was a garden, but it's a place where Judas knew that Jesus commonly went and hung out. So he knew the places Jesus frequented. Fully expecting him to be at this garden, and that's why he was able to lead these people there. Here comes anywhere between 20 and 50 people. And they come aggressively to take Jesus, and Peter doesn't like it. And he draws his sword, and he starts hacking away at the enemy. Now, Peter wasn't a soldier. He was a fisherman. So an unskilled man with a weapon going up against crack Roman soldiers... What was he thinking? What did he think he was going to accomplish? And even if by some remote possibility, Peter and his sword could have defeated these Roman soldiers, they would quickly be replaced by an even larger detachment of soldiers who would come and seek them out, and it would not have been a good ending for any of them. So do you see anything wrong with this picture? Peter evidently was acting out of fear and desperation. He certainly was not acting on wisdom because he had no hope whatsoever of defeating these people and protecting Jesus. And the fact of the matter is he did what he did because he did not assess the situation accurately. Now, I've seen excitable people in Christianity from time to time. I see excitable people in all walks of life. But we have them in Christianity. And there are those who have these unrealistic dreams and schemes and plans. And sometimes they use faith as an excuse to take foolish chances. I probably run into that more often than you do because I am a pastor and I see a lot of things you don't see, and I have conversations with people they would never have with you. But I can tell you from my perspective, there are people we have amongst us from time to time at any given moment that they don't properly assess the situation. And they make sometimes very irrational and foolish decisions. Sometimes as a pastor, you just kind of bury your face in your hands. We don't do things that way. Faith is not making grand claims and then expecting God to make those things happen. Faith is not putting God on the spot and then expecting God to rescue you because you've made bold proclamations. Faith is acting on God's actual command, even when it looks impossible, if God has told you something. And then, of course, we get into uh, a whole other dynamic about how does God speak to you. That's a difficult one for us to answer specifically. How does God speak to you? 
I would ask, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you does God speak to you in an audible voice? But don't raise your hand. How many of you does God send you a letter from heaven? And you read it and you know exactly what God wants of you. See, we don't get these real clear messages from God most of the time. But we've got an awful lot of people running around saying, God told me. And that would be all right because we do believe that God inspires us and speaks to us, except I see so many times in, my, in all of my life and all my ministry when people said God told them something that as it ended up, it was a mess. So I, the God speaks to us. I'm not sure we're the best at hearing him. I think that's where the problem lies. We could do a whole lot better in drawing close to God and learning to listen to him. So how does God speak to us? But sometimes we just take it upon ourselves to act or react to situations, and we end up looking like Peter. So Jesus, at another time in his teachings, had posed this scenario. He says, now tell me, what kind of king would ever go to war without knowing the strength of his army? What kind of man would set out to build something without first calculating the cost. So what Jesus is talking about is the value and the wisdom of having good plans ahead of time, knowing what you're getting into. But we still have people that sometimes are afflicted with this disease that Peter had, causing them to impetuously do things without measuring the impact of what their actions may bring or without calculating the cost or the practicality. We have to have a proper, realistic perspective on life. Now, it's, it's one thing to believe that God can do anything. It's a whole other thing to suggest He's going to do anything you say He's going to do. I certainly believe the omnipotence of God. And if God were to tell me very clearly, unmistakably, he was going to do something that I knew was, would be miraculous, I would believe God. At least I hope I would. I hope you would, too. Sometimes we just want to believe God is going to do something that oftentimes he's not going to do. It really pays to understand how to hear the voice of God, doesn't it? I remember when I was a young man, we had a, a an evangelist come to our church, and he was actually just an elderly pastor that our pastor happened to know that he knew he was a, a good man and a good preacher, and he invited him, would he come and hold us a revival? He was actually a retired pastor. His name was Brother Biffle. I mean, with a name like that, you just don't forget. So Brother Biffle came and preached for us, and I can't tell you any of the sermons he preached, but I can tell you one story he told. It has stuck with me throughout all this time. He went into a hospital, and he was praying for somebody to be healed, and while he was praying for them, they flatlined. So he made a decision. What am I going to do? So he grabbed a hold of that man, pulled him out of bed, and slammed him against the wall and rebuked death. Then he began to wonder, what if he doesn't come back alive and somebody walks in right now? You would be in a predicament holding a dead man in the hospital against the wall. Well, the story turned out okay. He rebuked death and the man came back alive. 
But you don't want to get into these things if you don't know that you know that you know God's with you. You understand? Peter didn't know. He just thought it was a good thing to draw his sword. It, it didn't prove to be the right thing. The second thing I can learn from Peter is the foolishness of taking matters into our own hands. Now, the most glaring mistake that Peter made was failing to realize Jesus had everything under control. That's a very simple thing for us Christians. Uh, we understand God's in control of everything. However, when we panic, we don't always act like we remember God has everything under control. Sometimes we go about trying to help God out in those desperate times. Peter was sincerely wanting to help. Problem is, he was sincerely wrong. Jesus didn't need the kind of help that Peter was trying to offer. As a matter of fact, I'm going to word this very carefully, and I hope you listen carefully and don't misunderstand, but God doesn't need our help. He requires our obedience and our participation. But if you might allow me to make the distinction, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your advice. He doesn't need you to get out ahead of him and do things your way because he's too slow getting it done. You don't like the way he's doing it. He doesn't need that help. He doesn't need us to force things to happen with our own strength and our own resources. And you can't push his timetable. You can't force his hand. You just have to wait patiently on the Lord. And it'll drive you nuts sometimes trying to do that. I remember when I was a child, I faintly remember the incident. Somebody had a box of eggs that were slowly hatching into chicks. And, of course, anybody who's ever witnessed that realizes that there's a few chicks that have already broken out of jail. And a few haven't started, and a few who are in the process. And, of course, I thought, the little chick is struggling. I'll reach down there, and I'll help this chick along. It was just a, a logical thing to do. You know, it's struggling to get out of this shell. Let me pull the shell apart and get it open. Well, before I had an opportunity to, the person who was guarding the box had warned me, you can't do that. You can't help them. You have to let them struggle to get out by themselves. It's a part of the whole process of surviving, the strength to break out and to survive. So you can't get interfere with that. I had a similar incident Several years later, as I was a, a student in junior high school, and as we would walk from the school to the local grocery store for lunch, there was a butterfly that was trying to break out of its little cocoon. And it was mounted on the fence next to the fence post where we made the turn and turned out of the school property and turned right and went down to the store. So here's this little cocoon there. And... I could watch it day after day, and it wasn't doing anything. But somebody finally decided, as it started breaking out, to help the butterfly. And they took the cocoon and broke it open, and what was inside fell to the ground, and it, it never survived. It wasn't ready. You see, a lot of times God has things that are hatching and things that are emerging from its cocoon, and we get impatient, and we want it to happen now. And in the process, you can ruin God's plans for your life 
if you don't wait patiently on God to bring things about in his timing, in his way. There was an evangelist who held a revival meeting at a church. I talked to the pastor when I was holding revivals in the South. He had told of the evangelist that had come into the church, and the pastor had told the evangelist, now we do have in a man in this congregation who is quite wealthy. The evangelist started scoping out the congregation until he had it figured out who the man was, had him spotted. So when the altar time came and people were urged just to come and pray, then the evangelist saw this man had come down to pray at the altar and the evangelist eventually worked his way over close to this man as he was praying, and he lingered there a while, and he began to pray, Lord, you know my needs. I'm needing new tires on my car. The car's about wore out itself. The bills are due. He's pouring out his heart to God and the man. And pretty soon, the pastor came over and tapped the evangelist on the shoulder and said, the man you're looking for is over there. We Try to help God sometimes. God doesn't need our help. Try to force things to happen. Nothing good comes from forcing the plan. Peter tried to help God. Whip out that sword. He's going to take care of this all by himself. Well, the second lesson I learned from Peter is the Christian perspective on using force. This one's going to be a difficult one because we're living in a day and age where we don't really grasp this concept like we should. We have been lured in to the mentality of our culture and our society and the conventional wisdom of today. I don't think we're holding as tightly to biblical principles and values as we should be. So what is the biblical principle the perspective on the use of force. People tend to favor the Old Testament Scripture that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That justifies sometimes our violent response and reaction to people. They hit me, the Bible says I have to hit them back. You don't hear those same people quoting very much if a man smites you on the cheek, turn the other cheek also. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be too hard on Peter. He impetuously drew his sword and started swinging. His primal carnal reaction was an act of aggression. But I think most of us probably would have done something similar to that if we were courageous enough. So I'm not trying to be too hard on him. Most of us, like Peter, would have thought at the moment, because you're just, you have to make snap decisions, this has to be the right thing to do. They're coming after Jesus, and I'm going to physically use force to stop them from doing that. But the thing about it is, is throughout his mentorship, Jesus had taught his followers, his disciples, his students, over and over again, this is the way you're accustomed to doing things. But if you're going to follow me, we're going to do it this way from now on. He kept teaching them how things would be different 
in following him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly says, you've heard it said by them of old times. But now I'm telling you, it's going to be different than that. See, there was the natural, normal, conventional thing to do. And then there was the Jesus way of doing things. The conventional thing to do is to meet force with force, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's what Peter did. It was, it was in his religious DNA. But Jesus did not approve of the way he handled this. Now, if we make an application to this, let's make the first application. What does it mean to me? As a believer, an individual believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, what does it mean to me as Jesus renounced the violent reaction of Peter? What does it mean to me? I think it's fair to derive from this story that Christ does not approve of his disciples reacting violently in kind when attacked. We call ourselves Christians. The name Christian means Christ-like. I mean, this is, this is Christianity 101. If we bear the image of Christ and we strive to be his representatives here on earth, then we're expected to conduct ourselves like Christ conducted himself. Not once in his earthly ministry to demonstrate the life that we should emulate, patter ourselves after, not once did Jesus get back in the face of somebody who was mean to him and become violent in his reaction to that. He just didn't do it. Now, the world around us, they're aware of our identity as Christians. They should be. You've, if you profess Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, you've probably at some point revealed that to your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers. They're aware of this. And furthermore, they are the best at holding us to the standards that they expect of Christians. And if the world sees you become physically violent, physically aggressive, you can be assured that they will say what? And you call yourself a Christian. They're always there to do that for us. They hold our feet to the fire. You know, a lot of times we want to resolve our conflict in the way that the world has inspired us to resolve conflicts. And I took my truck to the mechanic when I was in Alabama and they were just jerking me around horribly about getting this thing fixed and I needed my truck for my work I was doing carpentry work and they were just putting off and uh, getting this done and they had put a new engine in and the engine didn't work right and it was, it was becoming an ugly ugly situation so finally they just kind of didn't care if they got it done or not and I went down there and got I started pushing on them. I, I have to have this truck, you know. I wasn't nasty with them, but I was really making them, one of them understand how important this was. This is my livelihood. I need my truck. And that, that must have uh, pushed their buttons horribly because he started yelling and screaming at me and ordered me off his property. And on my way out, 
his brother, and they were a couple of rednecks. I, I don't mean to say that derogatorily. They, they truly, truly were. Come up behind me and kick me in the billfold, to put it lightly, just to make sure that I knew how angry they were as I was heading off the property. Well, I knew when that happened, it hurt. And I went home, and I was upset, and I was talking with my wife, and pretty soon I got up. She said, where are you going? So I'm going back down there. Well, now she's panicked now. Please don't go. Please don't go. What are you going to do? I didn't know what I was going to do. I'll figure it out when I get there. And I got back down. The shop was closed. The, the office light was on, and he and his buddies were sitting around having their brewskis and bragging on their daily, uh, on their accomplishments for the day, which I'm sure I was among the tales they were telling. And I stepped inside there, and it just became dead silent. And there's Purvis. And I walked in, and I said, Purvis, come on outside. I want to talk to you. Oh, yeah, that was enough. Oh, and they started this, oh, oh, it's on now. It's on now. So, yeah, he was glad. to. He, he put his beard down, and he walked outside, and he stood there. Purvis, I want to shake your hand. I held my hand out. And he, he, his fists were clenched. He, he, he was going to finish the job his brother had started. And he said, what do you want? And I said, I want to shake your hand. Why? So he shook my hand. I said, I want to apologize to you that whatever I have done, whatever I have said to make you that angry, I take responsibility for that. And I want to ask you to forgive me. Purvis, who stood about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, suddenly looked in front of me as though he was standing about 5'2". His shoulders slumped. His head drooped. And he began to dig his toe in the dirt. And he said, oh, he said, it's, it's, it's my fault. I should have had that fixed a long time ago. I said, Purvis, I don't care anything about that truck. You do whatever you have to do. But I said, I want to know that I am right with you. He said, I'll have the truck ready tomorrow. Yes. You see, you can't always take the world's ways tactics. You find out whenever you act like Christ wants you to act. I can't guarantee you everything turns out that well for you. But you can hold your head up. You can sleep at night. And you don't have the shame of having ruined your testimony because you lost your cool and you beat somebody into a, a, a pile of dust. Jesus wants us to follow his ways. And like Jesus said, this is the way you used to do it. You don't do that anymore. You call yourself a Christian, that's the old man. You're going to have to crucify the old man. There's a new way of dealing with things. One of those things is to demonstrate the character of Jesus Christ at all times and put the problem in God's hands and let him resolve it. So I have to say on a personal basis, this thing about getting violent with somebody, you're going to resolve it. That's not what God wants you to do. Now, let's, let's make the application second to the church. How is the church supposed to respond? See, Christ's disciples, his church, his followers, could never afford to be known as a violent militia running around advancing the kingdom by physical force. It came down to this point right here 
where Peter pulled out his sword and he was defining for future generations how we respond to situations like this. And had Jesus approved that, and the rest of his disciples approved that, then we would have gone down as a movement that when we want to get our way, all we have to do is just force it with a sword. And Jesus had a better plan in mind. That's not the way we're going to spread the gospel. And there will be forces come against the church. From that point forward, there would be throughout the centuries, sometimes violently. And how are the Christians supposed to respond to that? We're not supposed to respond by pulling out our sword and saying, this is the church of God Almighty, and I kill you in the name of Jesus. It's not the way the gospel is spread. And can you imagine what the reputation of the church would be, what the effectiveness of the church would be if our reputation was that we spread the gospel by the violence of the sword? Jesus never had any intentions of his church being known as a violent movement that coerced people by physical force. That's why Jesus told Peter, sheathe your sword. Not only did Jesus say, put your weapons away, we're not going to do this, but he goes over there and picks up this ear and pops it back on Malchus's head and fixes the mess Peter has made, which is lesson number three. What do we do when we make a mess out of things? God is good at cleaning up my messes. And even though it may be necessary, it's nevertheless very embarrassing that he has to do that. And after I get over the embarrassment of having acted impetuously and made a necessary mess of things, I'm then grateful God cleans up my mess. And I am surely not the only one here that has spent a little more than just a little time in prayer before God confessing, Lord, I've done it again. I have made a mess of things. I need your help. And then you hope and pray that God comes down and somehow just straightens everything out and makes it right. Once again, I won't embarrass you by asking you if you will admit that with me. Just let me take it this morning. But if you identify with that, you're listening right now. He's a patient Heavenly Father. And like the reattaching of that ear, it's in His great mercy and compassion that He begins to clean up after me, to mend the things I have broken, to replenish what I have wasted, to restore what I have foolishly damaged. And then He reminds me, after reattaching the ear, now, are you ready to do it my way? And let's not be lopping off any more ears in the process, shall we? See, God doesn't always fix my mistakes. I wish he did. Sometimes he just fixes me. And sometimes I have to live with the mistakes and the mess I made. 
You know what I mean? But what he can do is he can forgive me. He can redeem the situation. He can bring something good out of something that otherwise would have been very bad. God is the all-time, undisputed, universal champion of redeeming any situation. How many of you know that? And no matter what kind of a mess you've made in your life, one thing is for sure, you can bring it to Jesus. And one thing I know, He is our Redeemer. Would you bow your heads?